Who do you imagine would report the greatest happiness in life? Would it be the person who became a paraplegic last year or the person who won the $300 million lottery last year? According to Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert, neither is happier than the other. One year after winning the lottery and one year after becoming a paraplegic, the two groups of folks report the same levels of personal happiness. So what is it that makes life worth living? What makes for a good life? This is the question posed by a new class taught to undergraduates at Yale University. Four sections of the class are offered each term, and the classes are all full, a wait list. Mirzlav Volf, who spoke here last month, teaches the class, and one night he was dining at one of his favorite restaurants in New Haven when the chef appeared at his table. After they chatted about the delicious food, the chef got right to the point. Professor Wolf, my child is a student at Yale and cannot get into your course. Is there anything you can do to pull some strings to get my child in? Well, we have a few extra seats here, and this is the very question that we will deal with during the November sermon series called A Life Worth Living. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers, and perhaps we wouldn't all arrive at the same answer anyway. In fact, I love the joke that is shared amongst the ancient rabbis. A student of one of the rabbis approached him in frustration and said, why do you rabbis always put your teaching in the form of a question? And the rabbi replied, what's wrong with the question? If I can encourage you to ask the question, what makes life worth living? then I will consider this sermon series a success. I've heard the question raised in another context in a nuanced way. The surgeon and the author, Atul Gawande, talks with his terminally ill patients about what makes for a good day. Gawande learned to ask this question from his patient who said to him, I just want to take my, kids, my grandkids to Disneyland. That's all I want. And 48 hours later, the patient died. Dr. Gwandi was frustrated. If he had only asked her a month before what her wishes were, what her goals in life were, he could have medically made this trip to Disneyland possible. But instead, he had continued the medical treatment that robbed her of the really good day that she had wanted before her last day on this earth arrived. Annie Dillard said, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. So what makes for a good day? What makes our lives worth living? The same question is raised by the letter to the Thessalonians, which we've just read. Paul writes to urge and encourage and plead with his friends to lead a life worthy of God to learn how to live as they ought. Scholars tell us that this letter is the oldest evidence we have of Christianity. Paul had hung out with the Thessalonians, and now he has moved on to Athens, and he writes back to them to reconnect with them and to continue to build them up. He reminds them that to be a Christian is to live in a distinct way. 
Imagine trying to figure out how to be Christian when Christianity has only existed for a decade or two. What makes the Christian life unique? How is it different from being pagan or Gentile or Jewish? Frankly, I wish Paul had been more specific. Scholars do not even agree on his main point in this wee little letter, but maybe it isn't what Paul says, but how Paul says it that is the real message. For Paul writes to them a love letter. It declares his deep and abiding affection for them. Paul addresses them tenderly, saying, My dear, dear brothers and sisters, he reminds them that when he was there, he nurtured them as a mother nurtures. And in this section, he says, I guided you as a father guides his children. Paul then goes on to say that when he is separated from them, it feels like being an orphan and that he longs to see them again face to face. He, he wants to defend himself and, and make sure that they think well of him. And he wants to express again his gratitude for their ongoing friendship. He celebrates not only their relationship as mentor and mentee, but also the relationship that the people in Thessalonica share with the living God. Paul sees his role in their lives as encouraging them to respond to a relationship that God has pursued with them. He writes, lead a life worthy of God, who calls you into God's own kingdom and glory. Paul sees his friendship with them as interconnected with their friendship with God. And he knows, he knows, he's in it himself. He knows how hard it will be to be a Christian in that particular cultural context. When Christianity is just emerging, it will be so challenging. They will be tempted to call it quits. And so he invites them to stay connected to the community, that Christianity will not be for them a private feeling of the heart, but a communal experience. And yet, you and I, as modern-day Americans, so often spend our energy on something other than being connected to other people. Ruth Whitman wrote in last Sunday's paper an article on the critical importance of relationships and how relationships help us build a happy life. Lack of social connection is as dangerous to our human health as is smoking. Both introverts and extroverts report more happiness after spending time with people than they do after spending time alone. And yet, the average American spends about 30 minutes a day on social communication versus three hours a day watching television. The average American spends less than four minutes a day hosting or attending social events which, if you add that up, means that you don't even have time to go to your child's birthday party and the Thanksgiving feast this year. And half of all meals eaten in this country are eaten alone. This is especially bad news for our teenagers who need us far more than they need screen time. But even if you are a social butterfly, you may find yourselves avoiding relationships. 
we have all been wounded in the heart after investing ourselves in developing a relationship with another human being. So sometimes we set our own personal life GPS on something other than building relationships. Maybe there's a career goal that we have set for ourselves, and so we set the GPS on becoming a CPA, or a financial goal to earn enough to retire early and travel, or a skill goal to run a marathon, or a status goal to buy a house in a particular neighborhood. And we put these into the GPS of our lives, and we diligently work towards getting there. But are these what makes our lives worth living? The playwright, George Bernard Shaw, said, all our progress is but improved means to unimproved ends. In looking back at the financial crisis of 2008, Miroslav Volf says that the crisis was created by folks driving BMWs who wanted to drive Bentleys and by folks driving rusted Corollas who wanted to drive Camrys. We all want more, but does having more create a life worth living? Or does joy come from the person seated next to you in that rusted Corolla or that shiny BMW? Does joy come not just from running, but from the friend who holds up the sign halfway through the marathon encouraging you? Does life feel like it's worth living because of the home or because of the people who share that home with you? Is a trip any fun without fun people to travel with? Does it all feel worth it because of the paycheck or the people who share that job with you? Does worship satisfy unless you have also friends to hold the hymnal with you and sing God's praises together? Relationships make life worth living. Every single one of us in this room could make a list of people we know who have everything and who are miserable. They have everything they want except for what they really want, a life-giving, meaningful, loving relationship. So why do we keep setting the GPS on other things? Paul knew that life would get complicated and difficult and that they would be tempted to give up on connecting and following with Christ. So Paul summoned them to connect with the community, to stay connected to him and to God. So Dr. Atul Gawande's 13-year-old daughter was taking piano lessons from a woman named Peggy, and Peggy showed up in Dr. Gawande's office as a patient. She had metastatic cancer and was hospitalized for weeks. She suffered miserably and grew angry and was finally discharged to go home on hospice care. Her hospice team asked her, Peggy, what are your goals for your final days of life? What would be a good day? And Peggy said, I'd like to be able to take care of myself. So they set up Peggy's bedroom on the first floor of her house, moving everything she needed there so that when she woke up in the morning, she could get up and take care of herself. And after a few good days, Peggy said, I'd kind of like to try teaching a piano lesson. 
And so the 13-year-old daughter and some other students appeared and she began giving lessons and then they decided to have a recital and there they were listening at the recital to the students play Brahms and Chopin and Beethoven and this little girl was so profoundly moved by Peggy teaching piano to her in her final days on this earth that the little girl began pursuing piano as her life's work and just a few weeks ago she entered Berkeley School of Music as a piano major. Life was worth living not only for Peggy but for this little girl who discovered in the midst of that tender and fragile relationship her own life calling. Paul encourages us to receive the friendship of others not just as a human word but as the word of God. Paul sees God's life unfolding in them in the midst of their communal life. If they are to grow in faith, it will be because of the relationships that are tended and nurtured and shared. But relationships can be terribly trying. There is every good reason sometimes to simply turn away. They can feel absolutely impossible. Jesse writes in the Christian Century about a difficult assignment he received one day. Jesse works as a music therapist, and he got a call from a hospice social worker who invited him into the home of a dying patient. The patient's name was Ophelia. She was 80 years old, born in Cuba, and spoke no English. She had not communicated with her family in three days. She only stared off into space and spoke to people who were not in the room, sometimes shouting out these staccato bursts to what seemed like demons haunting her. Jesse could see how terrified Ophelia was, and he could see that her family was so frustrated by the inability to soothe her with a touch or a calm voice. It was excruciating to watch, and Jesse didn't know what he could offer. He knew only a few songs in Spanish and only one song from Cuba, and it didn't seem like an appropriate song. Finally, Jesse took a risk. He began to sing, and when he got to the chorus, Ophelia began to sing along with him. The family wept with tears of joy, and they all joined in singing on the final chorus with their mother and their grandmother. And when the song was over, Ophelia said something with great gusto in Spanish, and everyone in the family burst into laughter. But Jessie didn't know what was said, so she pulled aside a family member and asked. The family member hesitated and then replied, Mother said, why does he have to sing it so slow and melancholy like an Anglo? Why can't he pep it up and put some soul into it? Relationships with loved ones and with strangers can open us up to the presence of the holy mystery, the one we name God. Maybe relationships are not only what makes life worth living, maybe relationships with those here on earth are the very way that we practice being in relationship with the Holy One of Heaven. Reverend William Jackson tells the story of the famous actor 
Sidney Portier. When Portier first came to the United States, he worked as a houseboy in a hotel in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. Portier recalls that at the hotel, there was only one person, an older gentleman, who took time to teach this aspiring actor to learn the nuances of life in the United States of America, his new homeland. The man would teach him the customs and the colloquialisms that one needed to thrive in this new culture. Portier received many awards and prizes as a world-renowned famous actor, and one night, appearing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Portier reflected on that man who had mentored him back at the hotel in the Pocono Mountains. Portier said that he could no longer remember the man's name, but that there was something of that man in everything he did. There was something of that man in everything that he did. Imagine a life in which there was something of God's love in everything we did. <laughs>